If you brought your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you have, turn with me to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, all the way back, the first chapter. Let's just begin there in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1. So that's all the way towards the front of your Bibles, right? That's the second book in the Bible. Genesis is the first one. Exodus is the second one. Exodus chapter 1. I want to begin there, and I want to look at this first chapter of Exodus, but I want to look at more than just that. I want to look at, uh, at what God is doing and what God's beginning to do here. I think there's some things that the Lord would like to show us from this this morning. Exodus chapter 1. I want to begin uh, reading with the first verse. We'll read the first several verses, and then we'll go to the Lord together in a word of prayer. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1 says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Nephaliah, Gad and Asher, and all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were seventy souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died in all his brethren and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when uh, there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. So get them up out of the land. Therefore, they did set over them taskmasters, excuse me, taskmasters, to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Pithom and uh, Ramses, but the more were afflicted, the, excuse me, verse 12, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with more rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. Let us pray together. Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we just humbly come before you here this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the good day and for the many blessings. Thank you for the opportunity you've given us to gather here this morning, to worship together, to fellowship together, to serve you together here this morning. We thank you for our church family, each one you sent our way, the roof you put over our head, the nation that we live in. Every breath that we draw, it's all gifts from you. It's all blessings. Lord, let us not take them for granted. Let, them not, let us not take them lightly. But let us always be a people who are thankful. And give you the praise and the glory for everything, recognizing that all good gifts come from you. And so, Lord, I just pray as we go forward this morning in this service. Lord, you know our hearts. You know our needs. You know where we stand. 
you know what we're going through. You know what we're still yet to face. You know where we've been. So, Lord, I'm just asking that you would um, prepare us to, to meet the things that are ahead of us and deal with the things that we're dealing with. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us and encourage us. God, that you'd lift us up. Lord, that you'd give us the wisdom and knowledge that we need. Lord, my prayer this morning is, is that every one of us would leave here different than how we come in. God, that we would all leave here full of your spirit, ready to go out and serve you uh, with rigor, ready to go out and to uh, be your people, be your hands and your feet. Uh, Lord, that we would leave here this morning different than how we come in. And so, Lord, my prayer this morning is, is that you would just move in our midst in a mighty way. God, stir our hearts and is close to you, draw us near to you. Lord, and above everything, if there's any among us that doesn't know you, any that are lost and undone, any that are not sure of where they stand, any that are just backslidden, not where they used to be, not where they know that they ought to be, God, my prayer is, is today's the day. Today's the day that whatever it is that's hindering them, whatever sin that they've let so easily beset them, whatever it is that's holding them back, God, that today would be the day that they would repent of it and get it out of the way before it's everlasting too late. Lord, that today would be the day if they don't know you, that they enter into a relationship with you, that they come to the, sa to the saving knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, if, if they've just uh, backslidden, Lord, let today be the day that they would redo, that they would rededicate, that they would turn themselves over to you afresh. Lord, whatever it is that they're facing, whatever it is that they're going through, whatever it is that they're dealing with, God, my prayer is, is that you would meet them right where they're at this morning. God, and that you would do what only you can do and would be sure and give you the glory for it. And Lord, let me ask one more thing of you this morning. I need your help. I can't preach without you, and I know that. I got nothing worth saying. Uh, I don't even know anything worth saying unless you give it to me. So, Lord, my prayer this morning is, is that you would just clear my mind of everything, but your message, your thoughts, your words. <coughs> and that, Lord, that you would place on my tongue the very words you'd have me to speak here this morning. Lord, that you would just help me, Lord, to get out of the way and just preach to them this morning from my spirit to theirs. Lord, that it would just roll right off and, and flow. And God, my prayer is, is that you would just uh, use it in a mighty way and move amongst our people in a mighty way. And we'll give you the glory for it. Lord, I'm asking for your holy uh, anointing, for your unction. Lord, I'm asking for, uh, Lord, help me. Help me this morning. And we'll glorify you and praise you alone. We love you. We worship you. We praise your holy name. We ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Um, the book of Exodus. Of course, there's a lot that is happening there. Jennifer led us through a Bible study of it in Sunday school. Uh, probably been a few years ago now. Um, there's so much to it. It seems like the first half of the book is, is easy to read, the second half not so much, right? The first half is recounting events of, of uh, how the nation of Israel, it begins with giving us a brief review of, of how the book of Genesis ended, uh, telling us how they ended up in Egypt, what they were doing in Egypt, 
but the story of the Exodus is the story of them uh, leaving Egypt, right? Leaving the bondage of Egypt. I would say this if I could sum up the book of Exodus. It's like this. It is going from serving Pharaoh to serving God. That is, the see, that is the transformation that we see here in the book of Exodus. There is some clues to that given right here in this first chapter, in the first few verses that I read to you. Uh, verse 6, uh, it is a subtle hint, but in verse 6 when it says, And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. It's hinting at us that all of them that were serving God before and knew about God and knew how to serve God, uh, that, that that group had kind of died off in this next group wasn't quite like the last group was. It goes ahead and it kind of reaffirms that whenever it tells us, uh, uh, I lost exactly what verse it was, verse 8, now there arose up a new king over Egypt who knew not Joseph, right? We know from studying Egyptian history that this is probably a new dynasty that has come into power uh, and they had no recognition of what Joseph and his ancestors and his family had done. Uh, there is, uh, you know... Well, anyways, I don't want to get into all of that. Looking here at this first chapter, right, uh, what we see is we see persecution. I think that, and that's my point of what I'm going to preach about this morning, I think there's some things that we can learn about the persecution of God's people from this chapter. There's three things in particular that I believe the Lord wants us to learn here. And so I'll try to share them with you here in a minute. But as we look at this and we look what has happened here, right? We have got uh, the ancestors of Abraham, but it's a specific lineage of the ancestors of Abraham, right? We got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it is Jacob and the sons of Jacob. The scriptures tells us that they are a family of 70 when they go into Egypt. Right, the scriptures tells us, I think we're about 430 years later. And now if you were to do all the math and the figures and everything on this, you are at a people that is way over a million. Probably, probably two or three million. You have a nation that has been birthed inside of a nation. You see God's hand upon them, and one of the signs of God's hand upon them is they've been fruitful, right? And they've multiplied, right? That should remind us of Genesis chapter 1. That was the original command, was to go out and be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. You see them put into the land of Goshen, and they have been fruitful, and they multiplied, and they filled the earth. That's part of the problem, right, that we see here in these verses that I've read to you, is there's this nation that has been birth within a nation to the point that they are becoming they're worried about the numbers of them right and Pharaoh starts pointing out those people over there right he starts building some fear right that's a tactic that we still see used by leaders and, and despots and so on and so forth today right they start pointing out those people you need to be worried about those people you need to fear those people right what we see here in Exodus chapter 1 is we see the devices of the devil do we not we see his tricks we see the way that he divides people right and causes division right this at one time the Egyptian people were a people that were thankful for the presence of, uh, uh, of of Jacob in his family but now they are looking at them as those people they see them as a threat I'll just tell you this right now anytime somebody starts pointing at a group saying those people know that probably Satan is behind that because that is one of his tactics. Those people, right, who had been the people that had been, God had used to be a blessing 
to the Egyptians. Now they saw them as a threat and as a cursing. Interesting, isn't it? So we look at what is happening here. Pharaoh, I can see him standing up there giving a big speech. I don't know that it happened that way. Scripture doesn't say, it just says what Pharaoh said, but he begins to talk about those people. Look how many they are. Look how strong they're getting. What's going to happen, Pharaoh says, is there is going to be an army, there's going to be another nation that tries us, right? They're going to, we've got, since we are such a superpower in this world in this day and time, we've got a target on our back. And so anyways, there is going to be an enemy that arises one day and they are going to come for us. They're going to make an attack. They're going to try to invade our lands. And what is going to happen is this Hebrews, these Israelite people, they might just join with them. And can you imagine what would happen if they were to join with our enemies? Well, they would defeat us. That would be the end of it. So they start looking for ways to minimize the perceived threat of the Hebrew people. What, are they, what, does, what is Pharaoh's tactics, right? He's trying to minimize them as a people group right he is making them subhuman and so anyways the first thing the pharaoh does is he makes slaves out of them right that's what happens he makes slaves out of them right we'll put them to good use <coughs> and we'll make slaves out of them right they can build these treasure cities these store these store cities for us right uh, they can build these uh, great monuments for us they can build these things for us there's some free labor right if they're going to live in our land they ought to earn their keep so they ought to work for us and, and do this work and he thought that by putting this pressure on them by putting this oppression on them that it would lower the birth rates. I think that's what he thought. I thought that he thought that that, that it stands to human logic, right? That whenever you put that kind of an overt pressure on them, put them in that, that type of a situation, uh, that it would lower their fertility, right? It would lower their birth rates. And so then he could begin to gradually reduce the size that way. But it's interesting because the scripture tells us that even after they did that, the people grew that the more pressure they put on them and they made slaves out of them the people multiplied and grew that's what it, verse 12 but the more they afflicted them the more they multiplied and grew it done the opposite of what Pharaoh was trying to accomplish Instead of suppressing them, instead of holding them back, instead of reducing their numbers, instead, because God's hand was upon them, God was blessing them, they multiplied and they grew. So, this whole chapter is just a progression of Pharaoh uh, you know, putting the squeeze on them, turning up the heat, right? Trying harder and harder, right? To take, uh, to uh, put, to put more pressure on God's people. So when that didn't work, the second thing that Pharaoh did was he said, we'll just make it tougher on them, right? We will make them work with more rigor, right? We made their lives bitter with hard bondage, right? We'll add 
more work to them, right? Uh, we'll ship part of them off over here to build these treasure cities, and they won't even be with their wives then. And, you know, and we'll make the work so hard on them, they're too tired to go home and to have families and that kind of stuff. We'll make them wish that they weren't even born. That'll do it. But it didn't. The more that they, the more that they afflicted them, the more that they multiplied and they grew. And so if we go on, and I might read the rest of this chapter here in a minute, but if we go on and we read the rest of the chapter, we see that Pharaoh's tactics wasn't done. What Pharaoh does next is he commands the midwives to kill all the Hebrew boys at birth. Let me just say something real quick. I'm going to talk for a second. I guess maybe I'm a little political, but that's all right on this subject anyways. This ain't that much different. Actually, it's not any different than abortion, especially, I mean, this, all this is is a late-term abortion. It's a tactic. That, remember what I said a while ago whenever you got some leader that stands up and starts saying those people? The, the, this chapter here is a picture of Satan's tactics, and that's one of Satan's, uh, Satan's tactics to, to create division and to create fear among people. This is another one right here. To take a group of people and make them less than human. It is okay to kill this group because they're, they're not quite human yet. This is a tactic of the devil. This is exactly what he is doing here. And I'm telling you, it's not much different. I said I'd get political in a second. It's not much different than what we see happen in our own nation. I am thankful. I praise the Lord for, for what we've heard as come out of the Supreme Court that looks like it's going to be their ruling. Praise God for that. And, and another one of Satan's tactics was to try to cause fear to try to get some of them to maybe change their mind. Pray that God keeps their hand upon them, those judges, and they stay to what they have done, right? To, to the decision that they have made. What you see happening there goes against everything that we see happening in our society today. Don't tell me that the prayers of God's people don't work. That's the reason we, we have got the decision or potentially have the decision that we have. So anyways, we see back to our text here. We see Pharaoh trying to get the midwives to kill the baby boys at birth. Of course, if you go on and you finish out the chapter, you realize that that didn't work. So finally he orders all of the people, right? It's just a public uh, you know, thing here that you, all the Hebrew boys, right? Little boys could be thrown into the Nile River, right? The most aggressive crocodile there is, or one of the most aggressive is the Nile. I guess it's debatable whether a saltwater crocodile or a Nile crocodile is more aggressive. I don't want to be caught in a situation with either one of them. But that was the idea, is throwing them in there. Of course, the Egyptians saw the Nile crocodile as a god, but throw them in there is like a sacrifice to their gods, right? Throw them in there and let them eat these baby boys. Of course, that didn't work either. You see, the real question that maybe we need to be asking here, how is it that Pharaoh could do these things? How could he make these orders? How could he uh, justify these things in his mind? We could say that same thing with so many of our leaders today. 
How is it, right? How is it that in, what was it, 1973 when Roe v. Wade was was, uh, ruled on? How is it that they could make that decision then? How is it as a nation we could uphold it for nearly 50 years? How is it that Pharaoh could justify the killing of these children, the oppression of an entire people group? I'll tell you how. Pharaoh didn't fear God. Pharaoh did not fear God. The Hebrew God was not real to Pharaoh as far as Pharaoh was concerned. If you know this story, by the time you get on down chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, by the time you get to chapter 14 and 15, there'd been a change had taken place. Pharaoh knew that the Hebrew God was the real God. And at this point, Pharaoh did not fear God. Let me tell you this morning that those who do not fear God they will persecute God's people. That's what we see happening here. There's no fear of God. They can do these immoral things and they can persecute God's people. Listen to me. Here's the first thing that I want you to see from this. God's people will face persecution from those who are opposed to the fulfillment of God's will on earth. God's will was for the nation of Israel to grow, to grow and become a nation, right? They're birthed inside of a nation. Is that not the picture of a human uh, being birthed and being formed inside of its mother's womb, right? They are birthed inside of Egypt here. It was God's will for them to become a strong nation and then for him to lead them out of there and give them their own land, right? To, to complete them, I guess, in that sense, that part as a nation. That was God's will. But God's people are going to face opposition to those who do not fear God, those who are opposed to the will of God here on earth. Uh, this should not be any surprise to us. Jesus made this very clear to us, did he not? In John chapter 15 and verse 20, he says, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will, per- they will also persecute you. If you look at the next chapter in John chapter 16 and verse 2, he says, They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think they doeth God service. We have saw that in the past, church, and we are going to see that again in the future. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, when Paul was writing to the young minister Timothy, he says, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Timothy was suffering just a little bit. Uh, Maybe we've suffered a little bit, but not much, but the time is coming when we will, when we will. And you might sit there and think, why? Why is that the case? Why can't they just leave us be and we leave them be? The reason for this, the reason they persecute, is that a godly life exposes the wickedness of others. You think about that. I guess I've been on a little bit of abortion kick this morning. I didn't really mean to be. That's just the way it's went. But the fact that you recognize that as a human life, the valuable, made in the image of God, exposes the wickedness of terminating it, of killing it, 
I won't get into the gruesomeness of it, but you understand what I am saying here this morning. The fact that you recognize and praise God and give God glory. Right? His light shines through you. Right? It exposes the sin, the wickedness that hides in the dark and that hides in the shadows. People don't like to be exposed, right? They don't like the truth to be revealed. Uh, it makes them upset, angry, causes them to lash out. And instead of repenting of their ungodliness and turning to Christ, right? Which is what we should do. But instead it's our human nature to seek to destroy the one who has made the ungodliness, the wickedness obvious. That's why you see these social movements and things in our country and they will not stop. They will not stop until God's people in the church are destroyed. Oh yes, they'll say things like, well, we just want them to leave us alone and we'll leave them alone. As time has gone on, we've come to see that they will not be satisfied until we call their wickedness or their evil good. But the ultimate goal is for the destruction, right? Because our very presence, the very presence of Christ, the very presence of his word and his people and his work through him exposes the ungodliness and the wickedness. And our human nature is to lash out at that. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when people mischaracterize you. Don't be surprised when people criticize you. Don't be surprised even when they try to hurt you simply because of what you believe and how you live. It's as simple as that. But let me tell you something this morning. Don't give up. Don't, don't give up. Can, continue to live as you know that God has called you to do, as you should. God is the only one that you need to worry about pleasing Right, I think that part of, the, part of the reason the church has gotten weak and we've gotten in the mess that we are is because we felt like that we need to be everybody's friend and everybody needs to like us and we need to please everybody with our actions and the things that we say and we do. You end up with a watered-down gospel which is no gospel whatsoever. Right? You end up uh, where you preach salvation, but salvation without repentance. Uh, what kind of salvation is that? Right? If there's no repentance, then what in the world are you being saved of? There's no recognition of even needing, be to, needing to be saved. Right? We end up with a feel good, do whatsoever uh, you want and makes you feel good type of salvation, which is no salvation at all. God does not promise us deliverance from persecution. But instead, he promises deliverance through it. Remember that. Got nowhere in the scripture, right? And Jesus made it clear. I quoted some of the verses to you. Don't expect God to just pluck you out of that persecution. He doesn't promise us that anywhere. But what he does promise is that he'll carry us through it. Now, there's something else that I want to point out in these scriptures. So let's continue on. Look at verse 15. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shapira. I'll go with Shapira. Shapira, Shapira I think, is what it is. And the name of the other Pua. And he said, When ye do the office of the midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, 
then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called the midwives and said unto them, Why have ye done this thing and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. What they're saying is, is that these, these two ladies, they didn't do what Pharaoh asked them to do. Pharaoh asked them to abort these babies. They feared God and they said, no, we can't do that. But what they done was, is, you know, they said to themselves, no, we can't do that. And so anyways, when they went, of course, they would deliver the babies and everything. When word got back to Pharaoh that they weren't doing, they weren't aborting these babies like they'd been told to do, the, the men, the male babies, right? The, the women they figured could be married into Egyptian society, right? And, and they could, you know, kind of erase part of the Hebrews or their culture that way. And so anyways, it was the men that they wanted, it was the males, the boys they wanted killed. And so anyways, whenever Pharaoh gets word that they're not aborting these babies, and he asks them, and he calls them back, and he asks them, and he says, What's, what in the world's going on? They tell something that I've always had a little struggle with, because I'm not sure, um, anyways, how to handle it. But anyways, they lie to him just a little bit. They say these Hebrew women, they are different than the Egyptian women. They're a lively bunch. And they have these babies already. They already have these babies spit out and everything before we even get there. I think the point that we need to focus on here is why. Why these two midwives chose to obey God instead of Pharaoh. The answer is simple. It's given to us in the scripture. They feared God. They feared God far more than they feared Pharaoh. Listen to me. God's people are a God-fearing people. There is a lot that is, that is talked about today uh, in the modern church about how it's wrong to fear God. Let me tell you something. That is false doctrine. That is not correct. <coughs> that is not what the Bible teaches. As a matter of fact, if you don't fear God, I don't think you're one of his people. The Bible makes it clear that God's people are God-fearing people. So I don't care what anyone tells you. A healthy fear of God keeps us from giving in to the pressures to do evil. Right? They had a tremendous amount of pressure on them to do evil. But the fear of God is what kept them from doing evil. A healthy fear of God produces positive results in our lives. That's not Justin's philosophy. That's not even Justin's reasoning or logic. That is what thus saith the word of God. Hebrews chapter 9, or not Hebrews, Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 27 tells us, The fear of the Lord prolongeth days. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain 
of life. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 16 says, Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 6 says, By mercy and truth iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. Hebrews 19.23 says, The fear of the Lord tendeth to life, and he that hath it shall, abi uh, shall abide satisfied. He, uh, Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 17 says, Let not thine heart envy sinvers, sinners, but be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. The fear of the Lord is what will keep you happy. It will keep you alive. It will keep you spiritually happy and spiritually healthy. And it will also keep you away from sin. Fear of the Lord is a good thing. The Bible makes it clear. So... Maybe we need to define what is. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Just to make sure that we all understand here this morning. Well, the fear of the Lord, this is my definition, but the fear of the Lord is an extreme reverence and awe towards God. Right? Um, it involves taking God ser seriously. That means both fearing his just judgment and holding him in the, in the highest respect and love. It, results, it, what, it produces the results of a healthy fear of the Lord is respect, obedience, and worship towards God. It causes us to want to not sin against God because his wrath is so awful and his love is so awesome. When I think about the fear of God and what exactly that means, I think of my own earthly father who was far from perfect and far from the perfect example of a, perfect, of a, of a godly father. That is for sure. But he was still a good father to me. Uh, he loved me. He made sure I was taken care of. Uh, and when I think about the fear that I had towards him, I never feared him as in the sense that he would just all of a sudden one day for no reason beat me, right, or anything like that, that he would kill me, that he would do anything, you know, unwarranted or untoward. I, as a matter of fact, when I was in the presence of my father, I can remember as a child I felt safe. That wasn't because my father never disciplined me or never whipped me. Because he surely did. <laughs> he surely did. So I did have a fear of my father. I feared the consequences of my own actions. I knew he made clear from the beginning what he expected of me and what, was, what, what he would have considered right and what he would have considered wrong. And I knew that if I did what he considered wrong, there would be consequences and they would be swift and they would be sure and I will promise you as a as a child and as a teenager and even as an adult that knowledge kept me from doing a lot of things that I shouldn't have done right because I feared my God, my dad in that sense 
That is kind of, and that is an imperfect example, but that's kind of an example uh, that illustrates the fear of the Lord. He is our Heavenly Father, and He is perfect. He loves us, He protects us, He keeps us safe, He blesses us beyond measure. But when we disobey Him, there is consequences. There is consequences to our actions. So one last thing that I want to point out to you this, this morning in the last three verses. Verse 20 says, Therefore God dwelt well with the midwives. Right? He was favorable towards them. And the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass because the midwives feared God that he made them houses. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Now that cast in the river is the Nile, and that's the thing that I was talking about earlier. I want you to focus just for a minute on verses 19 and 20. Those that fear God are blessed. That's what those verses are about. These two midwives, who had been nothing before, these two women are blessed of God. When he says that he made houses of them, he means that he made names of their families, right? They became somebody. They were nobody, and now they were somebody. Because they feared God, they were blessed, right? That's what Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5 and uh, verse 10, it says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you. And she'll say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 14 it says, If ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. The fact is is that you are going to be persecuted. But the thing is, is because you're being persecuted might actually prove that you're being faithful, right? They are persecuted because they were, be, they were doing what God had you know, directed them to do. He was blessing them. His hand was upon them. God blessed both the nation of Israel and he blessed these midwives. Not only did he, re, did he reward uh, Shafira and uh, Pua, not only did he reward them immediately with families, but have you ever thought about this? Their names have gone down in history. What is ironic, I read quite a bit studying for this. Uh, there was a couple questions I had in my mind about this first chapter, and I was trying to get answers, and I read a lot of different commentaries and backgrounds, and, I, and I've watched and read stuff on this before anyways. Uh, what is ironic is there's such a huge debate over who was Pharaoh when this takes place, right? There's two different theories on even the time frame that took place. There's a more recent one and then there is an older one. I kind of think the older uh, time frame is the right one because more pieces fit. But even if you take that, make that assumption, right, that the, the you know, the 2000, 1800 B.C. or whatever it is, 1820 B.C., I believe, is the correct time frame, there's still debate on which Pharaoh it is. 
And the main reason we don't know which Pharaoh this is and all of this, right? These first 14 chapters of, uh, of Exodus takes place under, and he's mentioned countless times in here. The reason we don't know who he is is his name is never mentioned here. He's always referred to as Pharaoh, which is a title, or the king of Egypt. I think it's ironic that Pharaoh, who thought that he was God, we don't even know his name. But these two midwives, who had been nobodies before this, their name is recorded for all of history. Listen to me. Those that fear the Lord... God blesses those. They are blessed from now on. So let me ask you this question in closing. Do you fear God? Do you Let, let me put it this way, right? Because we may very well be put to the test sooner than what we realize. Do you fear God more than you fear men? That's what it come down to for them. Which did they fear more, right? There's no doubt they feared Pharaoh. Pharaoh had a lot of power. But they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. That's what it's going to come down to. Do you fear God more than you, more than you fear men? And lastly, if you're saying, oh, yes, yes, I do, then does it show in your life? Does it show in your life? Do you live like it? Do you make your decisions accordingly? Or are you still trying to straddle the fence? Are you still trying to ride the fence and make everybody happy? Right? Are you still trying to please both men and God? You won't be able to do that. Right? You won't be able to keep that up. The time is coming. If it hasn't already, you're going to have to make a decision. Who do you fear more? Do you fear men or do you fear God? Church, if we're going to see revival, we're going to have to be a God-fearing people. Right? We're going to have to put God first and we're going to have to lift Him up. So as Jennifer is coming for a song of invitation, I invite you to stand this morning and I'm going to open the altar and I'm going to give you an invitation this morning. If you've got a need, if you've got a heavy burden, I'm asking you, would you come this morning? Uh, Maybe there's somebody you need to be praying for. Would you come and pray for them? Maybe there's some things going on in your own life that you're dealing with. Would you come tonight or this morning? And would you cast your cares before the Lord? Would you lay them at His feet? Uh, would you ask His help? Would you confess to the Lord whatever it is? Maybe, maybe some things has happened. You've fallen short this week. You don't need to tell some man about it. You don't need to tell me or anyone else. But you do need to confess it to God and ask for His forgiveness. Whatever the need is here, would you come this morning? If you've got a heavy burden, would you come this morning? Whatever it is, would you come?